Okay, welcome back or welcome to recording is definitely in process. I'm Yogi Roth, joined by Ted Robinson. Teddy Yogi's Pac-12 Adventure. Ted, we're less than 100 days away from our first game on the Pac-12 Networks. By the time you listen to this, we'll know what that game is. They're going to announce that later this week. Uh, with that said, though, you're on your way to Paris. You got something called the French Open coming up, man. How, how you been? How you doing? We just, and we just came off the Stanford game. Well, yo, yeah, we finally had a chance to get back to get well. You've been at all the spring games. I was let out of my cage to actually see football again. And I'll tell you, Yogi, the, the, uh, there were two things, and this is not technical football. I'll defer to you on that. Two things. Last week, I went to a Stanford practice, actually went and sat and watched practice live. And that hadn't happened in 18 months. And it was, it was really a cool feeling. It struck me just sitting there and watching you know, there was contact. It wasn't the full contact, but there was some. Uh, Stanford is utilizing these guardian caps, they call them, uh, red rubber shells that go over the normal helmet. And I would say three quarters of their players wore those both in practice. And then in the spring game that we saw, Stanford's on the leading edge. They're not alone, but they're on the leading edge of concussion research and safety for players. So that was cool. Second thing, leaving the stadium, walking out onto the concourse and I saw probably half a dozen players with their families, all hugging and meeting and, you know, groups of six to 10. And of course, everybody's vaccinated here now in our world, thankfully. Uh, it was a safe gathering, but to see that was so cool. Families and friends and their, and their student athlete, their players that were able to get together. And I'm on the verge of going to the Olympics where there are not going to be families allowed. Nobody from outside Japan can go. So all of these great Olympic athletes and whose parents and families have devoted and dedicated years, plural, to this effort, they can't go. So to see this at Stanford was very cool. I took some pictures of it because it just struck me. I was like, wow, that is, that's one of the great things we've missed around college football. That's well said. And yeah, I can't wait to get recaps of you from the Olympics and from the French Open, right? You, you're, you're doing some huge events in sport. But to your point, uh, I, I did the same thing. I got to meet Ari Patu's family, got to see Tanner McKee's crew. Uh, and you're right, like parents were so pumped to be there. And, and I can remember, I had these, and I, I always tell the moms this, because I remember how much fun my mom had at spring football games and football games in general of like, you build this community, you hang out with the parents, you go through your highs and lows, you see your kids after, and even for the kids, like, or the young men, like, you never necessarily wanted to, like, I, I wasn't always like, oh, my God, my parents are coming. This is the greatest weekend of all time. But you kind of took it for granted that they were there. And you enjoyed giving your mom a hug after the spring game. And now what I, the, the common theme from being at nine campuses, Ted, and, and, of course, what you just referenced, nobody's taking anything for granted anymore. Parents coming, actually playing in a game in front of fans, it, it's really beautiful to, to watch this thing unfold at the pace that it has. And, and Yogi, the other feeling we had it together at Stanford, you had then had it for the last uh, session, which was UCLA. Now it's, it, every school's had their spring moment. But the word spring, and that's where I was going, the word spring, it, it's just synonymous to me with optimism for multiple reasons, whether it's the change of seasons, if you're in a cold climate, or if you're in a climate where we don't deal with winter very much, it's just the start of, it, it has a new feeling to it. So after almost a quarter century in Major League Baseball, 
where spring training was the most fun part of the year. It was just fun because nobody lost yet. <laughs> so true. Everybody was undefeated. Everybody thought they could have a great season, but that's a, that's a wonderful time because the day the season, the real season opens, that goes away. Somebody's lost. Half the teams lose on opening. You know what I'm saying? So spring football to me is the same thing. In spring football, nobody's lost yet. Everybody's optimistic. Everybody feels like they're going to have a, either the continuation of, of strong play or a rebound year, right? Or a growth year. Everybody feels that way in the spring. And, and I, I just, again, having been with you for Cal at the very beginning and Stanford at the end, both of those places, I walked away feeling that very strongly for both of those programs. It's a great point because if you look around Power 5 football, Kansas, I'd imagine, does not think they can go win the league, right? You can go find a couple teams in every conference other than this one that don't have that optimism, right? Just when they really get true about it. And we felt that before in years past when Jonathan Smith took it over to Oregon State. He knew how challenged the defense would be, right? Everybody knew what they had to kind of grow and find their areas of growth. But after seeing all the teams this year, and even Arizona, because there's such optimism to your point, and they're the team that's probably, to me, regarding talent, the, the least amount when you comp them to the, everybody else in this conference, everybody feels like they're going to be competitive. And, and I say that, you know, I've been with you in the booth now for, what, five, six years. This is going to be the most competitive season we've ever had. And, in, you know, I've been in this league for 16 years. You've been in it for you know, 20, 30 years, I really think it's going to be the most competitive every week. And you won't as a broadcaster be like, oh, we got to go to this team and call this game and, and it's not going to be competitive. I don't feel that, man. Top to bottom, I think every week is going to be a freaking blast once we get going. Yeah, and that's a great thing, Yogi. And it, it does point out, and, and I'm just going to be truthful here, it does point out, though, one of the dilemmas to me about the structure of the sport right now. If you have an extremely competitive conference and a very balanced conference, that means your top teams aren't going to be crushing people every week. And therefore, in what's become now the measuring stick CFP, you're not going to rate, right? Because you're not blowing people out every week and crushing the bottom half of the league. So that's, to me, you know, that's a structural problem that I hope CFP expansion helps to mitigate. But overall, Look, it's been one of the mantras I've learned in 40 plus years around college sports in both football and basketball. You know how a league is? A league is as good as the bottom teams. That's your league, not your top teams. Sadly, that's what gets the attention and, of course, gets the playoffs and gets all the rewards that go with that. But the strength of your league is the bottom part of your league. And if that is better, and we've said this for the years we've been together in this conference, if the teams that have been scuffling get their act together, and get traction. And right now you said Arizona is a perfect example of that, right? If Jetfish's early run now starts to translate on the field, that's better for everybody. It's better for everybody in the league. Yeah, I'm with you. I hope by the time we get to media days, the playoff has expanded, right? There's optimism. There's real optimism around that for this coming season. Because uh, I think your point's very well taken. And Coach Shaw said it, and we just came off the Stanford game. He said it earlier in the week of, Look, man, it's, it's just dramatically inequitable, right? Nine conference. I mean, it's all the same tunes that we keep playing. Uh, but I think to your point, this year, 
this league is going to be, it's, it's going to be fun. Uh, all right. So with that, um, the last two spring games of the year, Stanford and UCLA, they were late because their quarter system schools, they wanted to start after spring break after, um, you know, some exams. So that's why they're this deep into May. Ted, not only walking out with a ton of joy because of spring and seeing families and players, when you were driving home, thinking about the team, what were a couple of the thoughts that, that rang in your brain, in your brain? With Stanford. Yeah, with with Stanford, I mean, look, this is something I I found out just getting ready for the Stanford spring game, and we talked about it during the Pac-12 Network telecast. We did, you know, Davis Mills continues a tradition that's been, I think, lost a little bit in recent years, and that since the NFL draft went to the system that still exists today, that was 1967. That was a, a for football historians, that was basically a year of dividing. Uh, Stanford's had the second most quarterbacks drafted. Only USC, only USC's had more. Stanford second and Washington fourth, by the way. Three of the top four schools with quarterbacks drafted over the last 54 years are PAC schools. But the point being, Stanford has a quarterback expectation. And you know, we don't tell, you can't really tell from what we saw, but Tanner McKee, whom you know well from prior high school Elite 11 camps, looks the part, and I sensed has, if, if anybody has a slight lead heading into fall for the job, it's going to be Tanner McKee. Um, uh, their running game should be good. They have veteran offensive linemen returning, still with eligibility ahead of them, but they play. Three, they're going to have three starters back on that old line that have played a lot. That's good. And the, to me, the two questions are going to be as they bluntly told us like the first 30 seconds we talked to them last week, can we stop the run? We didn't really see that in the spring game because a lot of those people that will be counted on to do so didn't play. But then the other question is wide receiver. They're going to have a lot of guys and wide receiver that are going to have to step up a level that haven't played a lot or haven't played at the highest level. Can they do so? Uh, we know they're going to run. You know, they're going to have tight ends. You know, they're going to block. Do they have that play in wide receiver? That to me would be, and look, yo, you, you're, you're a wide receiver yourself. You know, you saw how many wide receivers got drafted quickly in the NFL this year. I mean, that was incredible. That's the position of everybody wants to play today, right? In youth football. Yeah. So everybody, so college football, if you're an NFL team right now, it ain't that hard to get a wide receiver in the draft. Now, if you want to get a game-breaking guy, just like quarterback, that's where you may have to go up top. But you want to get receivers, you can find receivers all the way through the draft. So now does Stanford have that? because that'll help you quarterback. You have a first year starting quarterback, whichever one it is, you have good receivers that can make his job an awful lot easier. Yeah, a big theme for Stanford this spring was finishing in the end zone. Everybody says it, but here's some numbers for you. So Stanford last year had 29 explosive plays. So that's 20 yards or more of a play. Pretty good, fifth best in the league in the shortened season. They had one explosive play for a touchdown. One explosive play for a touchdown. By comparison, Alabama had 27. Granted, they played, you know, six or seven more games, but you see the point. And I think a lot of times when you watch Stanford back on tape, you know, it's Bryson Tremaine on a great catch and gets tackled inside the five. Like, they got to finish because it's so hard to execute and, and create touchdowns on long drives. So I think that's going to be a huge key for them. The names for you to know, uh, and to look forward to, Ted and I will be there in training camp. John Humphreys, he didn't play this spring, uh, got banged up. Elijah Higgins, we saw him a little bit in their spring practice, their spring game. 
Uh, Michael Wilson, he did a great interview, but didn't play. And Bryce Farrell. I, I look forward to seeing those four guys this fall. Can they be real dudes in the league like they've had? In I the think past. we need. I think we need to refer to him as the right reverend Michael Wilson. Yeah. You, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, if you, <laughs> check. Check. If you go back, I'm sure it's on Pac-12 social somewhere. The interview you did with us, which was, if you're doing the recruiting videos for Stanford, that's like right there. That's why you go to Stanford. Amen to that. And then to your point at linebacker, Levani Damuni, Jacob Mangum Farrar, Ricky Miazon, Tristan Sinclair, uh, Jordan Fox, or Jordan Fox, Stephen Heron, Gabe Reed, Thunder Keck, like all those guys didn't play. Andreas Fox, uh, some of them went on Saturday this, this past week, but they need to be healthy. And if they are, they they have a chance to be one of the top third linebacking cores in the league, if not even higher. So So that'll be... That'll be huge for them. And they got the most challenging schedule in the country. They don't play any lower level college football teams. They start off with three straight on the road. You know, no one in the country in power five football has two straight on the road, for instance. Right. So they're going to have to earn it. They, they do. Uh, the one thing I'll say about their schedule, and you're right, they don't have any uh, tier two teams on there. They're one of the few that don't do that. Uh, but if you're going to play, if you're trying to do it for Stanford, the odd years, 2021 odd year that's the year to do it because their toughest games are at home yep. they have a loaded it, it their stamp we've talked about this forever Stanford schedule is horribly imbalanced between odd and even years the odd years it's a powerhouse schedule but it's mostly at home they do have to play at the college against USC but just about everything else that's really heavyweight for them is at Stanford Stadium you hope that for them that's an advantage yeah yeah I agree with that all right so let's flip it to UCLA uh Talking about schedules, they're only going to get on a plane four times all season. I think this team, see them in practice, have watched their spring spring showcase. I think th this team, out of all the teams I got to see with my eyes, Ted, so nine of them this spring, they impressed me the most. I walked out of there saying, "What was it?" I, it's a lot of things. One, it, I was surprised with how veteran they are. You know, when you look at their two deep. There's not an underclassman in the two deep, at least my projected two deep as of today on defense. Their offensive line, they returned the most snaps out of anybody in this conference. Now, granted, they played more games than some teams, but they don't, everybody returns, right? Mm -hmm. Every single offensive line returns. I think they've got two at, at both tackle positions, NFL offensive linemen, Sean Ryan, maybe he'll kick in a guard in the league, but he's an NFL player and Alec Anderson, he's an NFL tackle. Sam Marazzo returns at center. He's a, he was an all-conference player last year. At running back, they've got depth. Receiver is a question we'll get to. But I think where Chip Kelly has really made this thing unique is what he did in the portal. And it wasn't just best available. It was best available who fit. And oh, by the way, they went to Duke in Britton Brown. They went to Notre Dame in Jordan Genmar Keith, who we interviewed in the spring game. They went to Villanova in Paul Grattan. Uh, High-level institutions, right? Let alone... Alabama, Jordan, or Ali Cajo um, at Texas A&M. They brought a receiver in from there. Ethan Garbers, they get from Washington at quarterback. I just really like how they built this thing. Obi Ebo, of course, from Stanford. So the guys they brought in, they've won. Those are the only people that have played it for a winning team in college football. And they've made their mark on the team. Quantrez Knight had a chance to spend a lot of time with him. He's their starting safety, kind of the striker position, a little hybrid player. He's a face of the defense. You know, so I think when I got around him and then watched them move, 
and watch him make plays and then specifically watch Dorian Thompson Robinson to me completely change his game like in, in a great way I, I think he's, he's got a chance to be the best quarterback in the league I think they go as he goes there you go and that's I, what I was going to say because he's the most experienced quarterback coming back nobody's going to play more football in this conference this year than right. DTR yeah and and he's and to your point experience he had 304 pass attempts in high school Okay, here's a little comparison. I went back and did some work. You look at Jaden Daniels, he had 865 pass attempts in high school. It, my point is that Dorian needed reps and he got him for three years. Came in for Wilton Spade as a true freshman. Sophomore year, up and down year. Last year, played his most complete season in a pandemic shortened year and his best numbers. And now he's got a new QB coach in Ryan Gunderson from San Jose State. And he's finally, in my opinion, focusing more on the team than himself. And he even says that. Right. He's like, my whole goal this season was to get to know my teammates better, make it about them, be a leader, asking Chip Kelly, how do I become a better leader? All the things that you want a guy to take his game to another level in such a sport that's magnified on the individual. It's like he's speaking like Chip. His whole team is. And Chip is different. You know, like you can't just insert him into a roster and they're going to go win. Like he has it his way. And here in year four, I just it won't be easy. But, man, I, I'm not shocked if they beat LSU in week two at home. That, that is no longer a surprise to me. That, you know, that's saying something. Tell me about the other player. I'm, fast, I'm interested to hear your take on how they replaced Demetri Felton. Yeah, I think they have the best back in Chip Kelly's era. Transferred from Michigan, another guy out of the portal, Zach Charbonnet. Wow. This guy balled out in the Big Ten as a true freshman. He is a talented player. Uh, Britton Brown. One of the transfers I referenced earlier, he came from Duke. He gets his sixth year. All their transfers came back for the bonus super senior year. Uh, yeah. Your boy, Ethan Frenea, he's playing running back now. Kaz Allen, uh, he's the speedster. So I, I think I, I think Charbonnet is going to be the bell cow, and I think right. he'll so do me, So I'm, I'm interested because of, I, I think of Chip, and I think back to a Michael James, to Anthony Thomas, and then you say Demetric Felton, wound up being used to me very similarly by Chip that those two that he had in Oregon does is, is I don't know Sharma is he that kind of a player or does Chip had that kind of a player I don't I don't know if they have that he's a thumper I mean he's a true downhill back he'll remind you a little bit of Josh Kelly but I think he's got some more stuff to his game at running back in terms of setting up blocks um, so I don't know if they have that unique tweener small shifty guy but they got greg dulcich best hands on the team at tight end and what he's done they're going to be in a lot of two or three tight end sets uh their receiving court still don't know who is like uh absolute beast but in chip system they never have really had one of those guys you go back to watch his career and there has never been a Bolitnikov award winner in my eyes just lining up at wide out at x and just mossing yeah. people you know it's kind of been by committee and i think they've got a nice committee there so I think that's my point is that I, of all the teams, they're really complete. Arizona State's really complete. Um, I think Oregon's got a chance to be really complete. Uh, Stanford, if healthy, really complete. But I, I think UCLA, I walk away from three practices with my eyes saying one of the most complete, if not the most complete team in the league. Can that do it? We'll find out. But I'm, I'm bullish on them after seeing it in person. Cool. All right. So uh, we got a special guest today. We've talked about having special guests. Uh, it's Justin Wilcox. He did something very cool, which uh, he called it football 201 to the media. 
he gave us in the media uh, basically a graduate level course in football. He called it 201 because he's already done it once. He did it two years ago, pre-pandemic. Uh, and he just kind of takes the media through football. He takes them through X's and O's, took them through recruiting, took them through scheme, took them through defense, took them through uh, how you manage a roster amid COVID. It was really cool. It was two hours long. Afterwards, we caught up with him for a 10-minute interview. So uh, here's Justin Wilcox. And coming out of that, we're going to talk a little bit of RPOs and nerd out a little bit. Take a listen to Cal's head football coach. Yes, it was football 201, called it 201 because Justin Wilcox, the head coach of Cal, had done it before a class with the media talking about football. Coach Wilcox joins us now. Coach, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. So we just ended uh, a two-hour session with the media where you coached us up on the great sport of football. I got to ask, because you've done this before, what, what was the origin behind even beginning this thing? Well, um, to be honest, it had come up. Um, I think my first year here in some conversations, you know, that I'd had with some of our local media about, uh, I think during spring football, for example, about certain things regarding our program, whether it was schematics or recruiting processes and, you know, the, the media play a large, large role in, in our environment. And so we put this thing together called football 101 that just answered some big picture questions about college football from, you know, the recruiting process, um, you know, scholarships to transfers to schematics to, you know, just kind of a variety of topics. And it was really meant to just maybe offer up a little more insight to help them, uh, you know, write, write their stories or, or uh, ask their questions, you know, in the future. Yeah, no, it was, it was well-versed, man. Uh, it, it ended 10 minutes ago and I've already heard from other people in the media of the, the impact that it had on them. Uh, to me, the, the thing that stood out outside of the detail, which you get into a minute here, but you took two hours to do it. Like two hours and change. We've read about coaches doing this in the past, but I mean, that's a grip of time for a football coach to spend with the media who, you know, our job is to cover you and elevate you and also, you know, at times judge you. Why were you so willing to give so much of your time here in the off season? Well, I think it uh, again, it's I, I recognize the importance of the media and and their role in in college football. And it's an important role. And our fans uh, love reading about their, you know, our team and and the, the players and, you know, the things that go on in our program. So I thought if there's a way to help, uh, you know, enlighten or or maybe there's one little nugget uh, that, that one of the members could take away from. Our, our program or college football in general uh, to help them just be a, even a little bit more informed about something they're, they're covering. It might, might be good for everybody. And it's not, again, there's times when we get it, that we sign up for this, that there are, are judgments made and there's critiques made of our decisions. I totally understand that and welcome that as part of my job. Uh, but I beneficial uh, for everybody, players to learn a little yeah, I, I agree with that. All right, so some of the things that uh, you, sh you shared were things like the roster and recruiting around roster management, especially this year with COVID, everybody getting a bonus year. The Super Seniors is the graphic that every game will have this season and a list of players, and, and some teams have two, and some people are in the double digits. You also talked about recruiting and evaluating, and 
and why it's important to to have a clear vision with that. And then the transfer portal versus high school kids. And I want to go there. I think that is something that's a real challenge for coaches, for high school players, for junior college players, for those in the transfer portal that are trying to grad transfer or just transfer in general. How do you deal with that? Because I know you have a lot of empathy for the kids coming out of high school and the realities around the 25 that you get to sign every year. Yeah, so you get 25, uh, potentially more based on prior years, as, as we discussed. But, you know, those spots are so valuable to us, and it's the lifeblood of our program. And, you know, we, uh, we want to be a developmental program at, at our core and assigning high school uh, players and developing them in our program uh, is key to our success. There are times then that transfers, uh, it can be a, a beneficial relationship. You know, maybe it's a graduate transfer for a year or maybe a multi-year transfer, but it really has to fit. And I think uh, the transfer portal has become more and more, uh, you know, commonplace in, in uh, college football. And we, we recognize that, but I think it's also, you know, not something that we're going to uh, live and die by. I think it's going to be supplemental to our roster and, uh, I think educating the players who are, you know, considering the transfer portal on what it what it's about, the opportunities that are, that are out there. I think that's important as well, understanding that. But uh, it's just going to be a part of college football moving forward. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Positives, negatives, all around in that in that regard. Yeah. Um, we talked about situational football, and and every coach practices it. But I'm curious over the course of call it the last 12 months. Right. Last spring was eliminated for the most part. The season was what it was, a shortened season. And then you just finished spring because of like jumping right into game scenarios and missing some of the training time that spring and camp allows. Did you guys go even harder this spring on situational football just to try to make up for some lost time? Or do you plan on even doing that more in the fall than in years past? Yeah, we were heavy on that in spring and we'll continue to be really heavy in situational football in the fall. One thing we really try to do is anytime we're practicing is define what we're practicing, you know, whether it's a normal down and distance first or second down, whether it's obviously third downs, the different types of third downs, whether it's the go zone, you know, kind of in that area where you're defending maybe third and fourth down potentially based on where the ball is on the field. Maybe it's backed up. Maybe it's a two minute, maybe it's a high red or low red area. So really each and every period and every play is, uh, uh, defined on, on what the situation is that we're working on. So we're not just running plays to running play, just to run plays to run plays, so to speak. Yeah, no, I heard that. All right. So, so what is your team doing right now? I believe they're all back on campus with love the lay of the land. Here we are May 25th. Yeah, uh, it's great. We just got back in, started our summer uh, strength and conditioning program uh, phase one, and that started yesterday. So the players are back. Um, we had our first workout yesterday. Second workout was today. The uh, energy is awesome. They are coming off of finals and they had a short break and uh, we're getting more players around each other. Um, obviously, strength and conditioning is taking precedent. We have a little bit of time. We're actually able to meet with them as well and do some film. So uh, it's an exciting time as we work back into uh, summer conditioning, which is a critical phase for for all uh, teams across the country. Yeah. And I'm just kind of curious, like, what, what does it feel like? now like you had spring and you know, stadiums are being announced that they can get full across the country hopefully we have that on the west coast here as well in college football but inside the lens of you like is there any 
quote unquote normalcy that's occurring or where's your headspace at? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more and more, you know, it's uh, each week seems like it gets a little bit better on terms of what we're able to do. And some of the news we're getting regarding uh, COVID protocols and where, uh, where the city is in terms of uh, COVID cases, things like that, that impact our daily lives and how we operate. So uh, we're getting closer and closer. Players are able to come in and, and eat inside and we're working out in the weight room. We got bigger groups uh, being able to work out, you know, on the field. So it's uh, noticeable and the players, I know, you kind of feed off each other in the energy that that provides. So it's a, it's a good situation. Okay, before I let you go, um, I've been around to nine of the schools in this conference and a lot of them return a lot of players. Uh, you're one of those schools as well. Oftentimes, like, you know, you, you know me, I'll, I'll yell to the heavens about what I think the competitive depth is in this league. I think this year it's the best I've seen it in my 16 or so years in the Pac-10 or Pac-12. But you coach it. You live it every day. To, to the fan in the southeast or the Midwest or the northeast or the southwest that may not be paying attention to the Pac-12 and may still even call it the Pac-10, uh, what, what would you say about the realities of the schedule you're about to embark on and the conference games you're going to have to play? Yeah, I mean, it's – the balance uh, within the conference in terms of the, you know, the talent uh, that's spread out throughout the teams, the coaching that those teams are receiving, uh, it just makes it for an incredibly competitive environment. And I think that's one of the beauties of the Pac-12 is, you know, the quality of player and, uh, you know, the, the depth throughout the conference, really. And the teams, um, you know, there is no, there is no easy Saturday. I mean, there just isn't. And it's, uh, tribute to the the recruiting that's gone on. There's some really good players, uh, and there's some excellent coaches who you know coach the game really, really well. And it makes it challenging each and every week. But that's uh, part of the beauty of the Pac-12. Yeah, I think as deep as ever. All right, coach, I want to let you go. I appreciate the time, and uh, hopefully see you soon, man. Hopefully, a training camp tour for Ted and I is in the works. Yeah, we'll be looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on, Yogi. All right, bro. All right, that's Coach Wilcox driving. Uh, appreciate some of the audio edits, uh, but Coach, I appreciate really the time. And as we get going here into the season, we will have more and more guests. And uh, to me, the big thing, Ted, was what he did for the media. You've been in the media for a long time. What do you think about Football 201 at Cal? Well, well what I, look, you know, I think anybody that's listened to us, uh, either on the network or on our pod here for a couple of seasons, knows I think we held Justin in very high regard, David Shaw, the same way well, most of the coaches in this that we've been around, both past and present, have been that way in understanding. But Justin hammered it home at the very beginning of your talk with him, the value of the media. And not just, you can treat the media as an adversary, which was a traditional way football coaches did, basically. The more forward-thinking coaches, and now I think that's a higher number in this era, Justin being at the lead of that, our understanding that the media can help us help us explain, help us present to the fan exactly what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're confronting all these, and college football right now, college athletics is in a state of tremendous change. Where it lands, none of us knows yet, but as those changes get navigated, explaining it to people is going to be of the utmost importance, and you just went through some of that with Justin. So anyway, well, we've said it, we said it two months ago, Cal's very lucky to have you. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, let's in the last portion here of the pod, uh, because you know, we're going to take a little break here. 
till we get back in a, in a couple of weeks. And let, let's talk RPOs. We've got a lot of great feedback on the podcast we did on the air raid uh, from people that love football, from people in the league, people in college football. Uh, so we want to kind of make a commitment to talk a little scheme here. So Ted, RPOs, uh, let, let, let's just start. I'll give you kind of an overview and then see if you can kind of plug some holes in this thing as we explain what this is, because it's, it's dramatically overused. Uh, I don't think it's always understood what it is. Uh, in our broadcast world, try not to say it every time we see it because it happens very often. Uh, but I think it's important to know what RPO even stands for. If you're listening, it's run pass option. You probably know that. And ultimately, what they're trying to do on offense is create conflict for the defense. And to me, there's two types of RPOs. There's a pre-snap RPO and a post-snap RPO. Pre-snap, quarterback's going to make the decision before the ball is snapped. So here's the example. Uh, a lot of times Washington State will do this in their RPO game. We've seen teams do this where they just count the box, right? They count tackle to tackle. If there's five guys in the box and you feel as though you have an advantage to run the football, you're going to run the football. If the box is stacked, you're going to throw the football, right? A lot of times quarterbacks will see single safety high. Okay, single safety. That means there's more defenders closer to the line of scrimmage. We're going to throw it. Two safeties, split safeties. Um, we're, going to, we're going to be able to run that thing uh, because guys are just deeper. It's a softer defense. So, so that's the pre-snap. I think that's very easy, Ted. The post-snap is where it really gets fun. And, and that's an interesting point because I, if my education of this, you know, the, the key word is option. So now here comes the, uh, the, the senior set here. Option's been around football forever. There's always been option in football. I mean, I grew up with the wishbone, for goodness sakes. That was a triple option football. Different formation, uh, obviously three backs behind the quarterback. Rarely did the quarterback throw. And then you'd have, you'd have the great Texas and Oklahoma wishbone teams would end a game with three or four passes, but it was always option football. It was, do you, do you, you put it in the guy's belly? Do you pull it back? Do you give it to the guy or do you pull the ball up once in a while and actually shock everybody with a pass? Um, but what, and what we saw to me um, where it really became prevalent was one guy, Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick brought it into the 21st century uh, Yogi, but that was post snap. Everything there exactly. was post snap. So that was the question you just tackled to me was, is there such a thing as a, because the option to me would be you, you're changing the player. If it's a pre-snap RPO, you're just changing the play of the line, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think what's great and had a chance to talk to coach Wilcox about RPOs yesterday as well. And he, he made an exact point of like, yes, coaches like to take credit for recreating offense, which is great. And we give them a ton of credit for that, but it's a single wing football. But if you, if you go back to your point, the archaic times in college football, the Green Bay Packers ran elements of single wing football. And then it became the West coast offense. And then it became da 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 in a way that it goes. And I think I always love drawing up football where, where guys end up and where they end up is very similar in most schemes, how they get there. And the, Ways you can, you know, make something look a little different uh, varies based on run and shoot, air raid, uh, you know, RPO, whatever, triple option. How you get there changes, but ultimately there's only so many windows that players can be in on the offensive side. So, so I'm with you there. Uh, over the last 10, 15 years, 10, 15 years, this thing has really taken off. Uh, but let, let's dive into now 
post-snap RPO. So this is quarterback making a decision after its snap. Now, it's important to know a basic rule, especially when you're watching college football. In college football, offensive linemen are allowed to be three yards down the field, and the quarterback can still throw it. In the league, as Ted, you know, it's one yard. Right, so I want to hear some Colin Kaepernick examples. You called Niner games for, for a decade or so, and, and you saw that up close and personal. But just to kind of give everybody a little nerd version of the post-snap RPO. Yeah, and that's Again, what yeah. oh, I'm sorry, Yogi. What I want to do is do this, and I want you to chime in because I saw this at the NFL. As you said, there's a rule difference. Obviously, there's a, just a difference in level. The levels of defense in the NFL are just much different than the levels in college. And that's what I want to find out is how this translates to college. Yep. Because what happened with Kaepernick, to be quite simple, was, and it was one game, it was a playoff game against the Green Bay Packers at Candlestick Park. And it was the game that put Kaepernick on the map, but it was a playoff game. And it was the simple play of Kaepernick taking a snap, starting to roll, and he's reading the outside defensive end, edge rusher, outside linebacker, whatever position name you gave him. And I'm horribly blanking on this guy's name, but in this one playoff game, Kaepernick just tortured him. Because this guy, this player for the Packers, basically took the bait every time. He played the running back. He played the back. Kaepernick pulls the ball back and takes it, and he ran for 180 yards, I think. It was some sick number of rush yards for a quarterback in a playoff game. And it was simply by he just abused this one defender. Now, why that defender and why the Packers' defensive coordinator didn't adjust in that game is an eternal question. I've never heard an answer to what happened the next week. This is where I want to take this to you for college. The next week, the 49ers play the Atlanta Falcons for the NFC championship. Mike Nolan, a longtime defensive coach in the NFL said and admitted. So afterwards, he said, I just told my defense Kaepernick is not going to beat us with his legs. They took that completely away. It took the 49ers a half, but they figured out what they could therefore do because a defense can't take everything. They can shut down certain things. They cannot shut everything down. And it took the 49ers a half to figure out what was being left for them. And they figured out a big thing was passed to the tight end. Uh, so Kaepernick, therefore, could not win with his legs. And that became a theme most of the rest of Kaepernick's career with the 49ers. NFL team said, you're not doing that to us. You're not running for 100-plus on us. You're going to have to beat us doing something else generally by throwing the ball. And that, to me, led to the eventual withering of Kaepernick's game. He was no longer that effective because he couldn't beat you doing that uh, enough. So now take that into college. Can college take that? Can college football defenses take that element away in that zone read slash RPO? They can. They can. It is dramatically hard. And here's why. You need elite corners. You got to be able to play man coverage. You have to be able to play man coverage because you want to play a lot of times in my eyes, single high football, one deep safety. If you can do that, you can add somebody closer to the line of scrimmage to just add another body, add another body to the gaps, have somebody that can account for the quarterback. But if you can't play man coverage, then you're in a lot of trouble. And I don't think anybody in college football, I don't care if it's Alabama and Patrick Sertain or Ohio state and their DBs or, you know, SC or Oregon. I don't think you can do that. Yeah, you, want to be, you want to play the Seattle, the Seattle Seahawks, Pete Carroll defense in college. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. But the problem is, is the three yard rule makes it hard in between the hashes in the league. The hashes are different. 
right? The hashes are tight in the NFL. In college football, these hashes are far apart. So you're lining up on hashes, just naturally way more space. So when you see teams spread a defense out and in their RPO, everybody has someone there reading. So let's just say it's uh, outside linebacker. We're going to read the outside linebacker. So I'm a quarterback and I may not be the most experienced or I could be the most experienced. It doesn't even matter. Chase Garbers, read the outside linebacker. If the outside linebacker commits to the run, throw the slant behind his ear. If the outside linebacker drops into coverage, hand it off to one of the litany of backs that we have or run it yourself to the point if you want to read off of a defensive end, a defensive tackle. We'll see this year, Kayvon Thibodeau, teams will try to read off of him yeah. because they're going to say, I can't block you anyway. Yeah. So it's, it's really hard. And to me, it's a total cat and mouse game. And that's why it's fun when you broadcast these games. And I think even for the coaches, because now we've got to try to make the quarterback confused. We've got to slant the defensive line. We've got to loop a defensive tackle. We have to act like Coin Dang is dropping or, Dallas, or Devin Lloyd is dropping at Utah and then bring him on a blitz. Those are the areas where you try to really confuse a quarterback. Right. So how in the RPO game, because there is an, it's an option, how do you pass protect? And how do you pass to, to take it a step further from your point? So if you're going to play press man, that's going to disrupt receivers off the line in theory, right? Which means the quick hit is disrupted. How do you pass protect to develop the RPO game to run longer routes? I think it's really hard to, I think that the teams that do that run a lot of RPOs probably aren't elite at pass pro yeah. because what they're trying to do is say, man, let, let's just say if we played Oregon, if I was an offensive coordinator up against Noah Sewell and Kayvon Thibodeau and Mace Funa, let's just give a couple of guys on defensive love. I, I don't want to just have to pass pro even if I wouldn't even want to max pass protection with me, keep a tight end and keep it back in. I think it's just going to be hard because it's going to eliminate the amount of weapons at receiver if I max protect, or it's going to really stress my defense, my offensive line and my back if I'm going to try to pass protect. So I'm going to RPO this thing. I'm going to try to get the defense moving a little bit. I'm going to try to get them on their heels and see if I can catch one behind an ear hole. Colorado is good as anybody in this league at RPOs. Go back and watch Oregon State, Washington State, week one, Jane Delora, awesome with RPOs amid their air raid scheme really good there because the defense isn't really sure what's happening. And that to me is how teams that aren't like elite elite, that's how they can neutralize the defensive talent that they're going against. And that's why I think we've seen so much of it. And even Alabama did a boatload of it and just challenged the daylights out of everybody in pastoral because you don't have to protect for that long. Right. And if I can get one defender to pause for a hair, that sometimes the difference between a sack and, a, and an explosive touchdown. So now here's another thing. And I used to ask this question when I was around Kyle Shanahan, whose offense is built largely on play action. And I used to, sometimes I said, I, I'm coming off a Saturday game and I'm hearing RPO, RPO, RPO. And now I watch you and I think some of this is RPO, but it's actually play action. He goes, yeah. And he said, if you do it really well, it's hard to tell sometimes, right? Even the pros, is it, is an RPO play or is it a play action? Does that, does that ring true to you? It does ring true to me. To me, it always comes down to the, the QB. Like the RPO, to me, it, you can get lazy with your eyes watching it. It even will happen to me broadcasting games where you want to call something an RPO, but then when you go back and study it and you say, 
that was just a play action pass because there was never a threat of the quarterback keeping it unless that's things broke play down. Action's gonna be, that's what Kyle said. Play action's a pass, period. Yep. <laughs> it's not a run play. He just That's the whole point. Yeah, and I think the, the, the way to really nerd out on it, we should do it this fall, is the clock goes off in your head as an offensive lineman. Right. And as a, so here's the example. As a wide receiver, if I'm blocking downfield, my job is not just to block downfield, it's to feel the defensive back, feel him and where his body's going. If he's trying to get over my outside shoulder, then the running back's going that way because he can see it. I can't see it. So I got to trust where his body's going and try to take him there. I'm an offensive lineman now. I got to do the same thing with these linebackers I'm seeing. If I see them all of a sudden rushing upfield, I got to be thinking, hey, something's happening here. Like if I see them going laterally, the back probably got the ball on the run portion of the RPO because the O-linemen have to be disciplined to the three-yard rule. And that's why we see it close. And, and it's important to note on the three-yard rule, the full body has to be over the three yards. So it's almost four, in my opinion. Like it's not just his head crossing a, per, a relative line. And oh, by the way, find something harder for an official to have to call a 350 pound offensive lineman, six inches over three yards. Come on, man. I would say, Yogi, we've seen this, well, the last few years we actually were able to do games, we could see. To me, that became the most um, frequent occurrence of coaches screaming at officials from the sideline was about that. The RPO play, the linemen are down the field, they're ineligible down the field, right? Off, and it has to be a pass for that reason. But I, I, and it took me a while to understand that was the point. And again, I was, fortunate enough at that time to have the Sunday uh, access to ask these questions as well. And that's when you find out is they're screaming about the offensive lineman being downfield. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. I mean, offensive defensive coaches every other year in college football, there's a rules committee, the opportunity to present new rules and then vote on those new rules every year. I feel like this has been a rule that's tried to get voted on because it makes it nearly impossible mm -hmm. to play defense. So, so the way you do it is you have to, you have to win matchups. Like everything is schemed for success, but if an interior defensive line blows up a guard, the RPO is dead, right? So there's, the, it's really fun to watch guys. Are they trying to, you know, and Cal is one of the better defenses to watch against this. I think they do a great job of, you, you think like they're coming, bringing pressure, they drop into coverage. You think they're dropping into coverage, they bring pressure. Just trying to confuse what you said earlier, the timing the timing of the quarterback and the read, the, the handoff, the fake, the throw, the route. And, and I think that's, that's your best bet. And if you can get an RPO team three and out, three and out, three and out, you can kill their confidence. I really believe that. Well, yeah, yeah absolutely. Let me circle back to where we started this thing with the, with the example of Kaepernick and what, to me, where the zone read again, as it was called, and now RPO started was literally taking one defender and putting him in a vice saying, you're, you're screwed, dude. You've got to make a decision here. And I think more times than not, I'm going to beat you on that decision. How have you seen defenses? Cause that's a decade ago now that this started. How have you seen defenses adjust to taking or, or limiting the time that one guy gets put into that bad spot? Yeah. Well, the, the fun part is that the, the both have evolved. Offense has evolved because they're not just reading the same one guy right? To our earlier point. Sometimes they're reading, in my opinion, you usually read the guy that you, you have the most challenge, you're most challenged to block or to protect against. Interior D lineman, edge rusher, outside backer. You also want to put 
the nickel outside backer guys in the biggest bind. So to answer your question on defenses, to me, it's all about late movement, right? We saw a great example of that in the Rams Patriots Super Bowl, right? The clock went off in Sean McVay to Jared Goff's head. You know, you couldn't speak to the quarterback because the microphone was shut off. The Patriots changed defenses. So they made Jared have to make changes to the line of scrimmage. Same thing with RPOs. And that's why you see teams stemming on the defensive front. You see teams changing coverages. Utah's as good as anybody. See one look, they changed another. Arizona State's gotten really good. I think this year with all the DBs returning, UW is phenomenal at it. Um, and then the other part of it is, in, and Washington's probably the best in the league at this, is welcoming the throw. Okay, this is a heavy RPO team. They're going to read off of, call it, uh, you know, if it was last year, it was Elijah Molden. Okay, cool. We know that, right? So let's minimize any damage and see if they can RPO us to death 12 plays down the field. I, I, I think that's a challenge to do that. You create the RPOs to get players the ball in space on the move. And if you get behind an outside backer or a nickel defender, you do what Alabama did all year, which was take slants and take them to the house for touchdowns. And I think that to me is the origin of like quick game became explosive plays because of the RPO and guys screwing up. Wow. Yeah. I'm sitting here. I'm trying to find this guy's name because it's just killing me. Who the guy was that? <laughs> the guy that got put in the, uh, in the vice, Eric Walden, I think was his name. Uh, defensive edge rusher and and to me that was that was the moment that this whole thing was 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 just crystallized to me about how it could be such an effective thing now uh, maybe maybe a good place to swing this forward is to say okay option we've so we've had wishbones we've had triple options we've had all kinds of option football this is a different kind what if you were going to project ahead what's the next iteration of option football we're, we're deep into an RPO phase, right? Yeah, that's a really another, good Is there question. another advancement that you see? I actually see the reverse happening. Um, I think teams are going to get back to, because what, what we've seen now, and it's even in the NFL, the NFL is drafting a nickel defender. Give me somebody who's 5'10", can play man coverage and is physical in the run game and play that spot versus an outside linebacker position. I see, I just, this is a hunch, Ted. More and more teams are going to like multiple tight end sets. I think it's about to get really heavy again. Well, that, yeah. You know, like whether that means we see some traditional option football, whether that see, says we see some old school man zone gap run schemes. I just think that's where it's going to go. And then uh, have the ability to take those unique tight ends, right? We saw somebody get drafted top five, right, this year and run the RPOs with them. I, I think that's probably the next phase, like from a development of personnel standpoint. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I just think it, I think teams want to get back to that identity. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say RPOs are gimmicky. I mean, they're part of football. Everybody does them. Right. I just watched some plays the other day of uh, the Patriots were doing them uh, with Tom Brady back in the day, right. Tampa Bay has their version of it. Of course, Kansas, like they're not going anywhere, but I think, to say we can go win a championship based solely on that, I, I don't think that's the case anymore. Right. No, I think you're right. That's my point. That's why I was asking because option football's been around forever. This is a new phase of it, and that quarterback, basically, with you know, again, Kaepernick was a groundbreaker. Now you're seeing Lamar Jackson, yeah. who to me is a better version of Kaepernick, right? And by the way, with the same offensive coordinator that Kaepernick had, running heavy, running power, and I think I I've thought. 
Yogi, what you just said, I think is 100% right. I thought that was going to happen for a while because what we saw, we saw it with Tristan Sinclair at Stanford. Tristan Sinclair was a safety in high school, which means he could run. But they put a little more bulk on him, and suddenly now he's a linebacker in college. The NFL's been doing this for a while. Mark Barron, players like that. A guy San Francisco has right now, Fred Warner, came out of BYU, can run like the wind. That's Defenses in the NFL are fast. Everybody's fast. So what's your counter to that? You said strength. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. All right, so this was this was a good podcast. Uh, went a little heavy, uh, but that's because, Ted, um, you're on your way to Paris. Well, are you looking forward to it? French Open? I've, I've been there with you before, man. It's been a couple yes, years, yeah. though. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I'm off on a little, uh, it's a summertime venture between tennis and the Olympics. So I'm going to Paris and then I come right back to Indianapolis for the Olympic trials in diving, the sport I'm covering. Uh, and that involves an awful lot of testing and procedural hoops that I, I said this, I was on a call before we did this about the Olympics. And I told people, I understand now what I've heard and you've heard from coaches and players, both in football, and I heard it a lot in basketball. And I heard it even from referees is the COVID fatigue, the testing every day, the procedures and the things we had to jump through that everybody has to. I'm going through it now with international travel and the Olympics involved, trying to keep make sure that the Olympic athletes are kept safe, even with vaccines. Um, it's a lot. It's intense. And um, so by the time I get through that, I'll be ready for football with you, Yogi. <laughs> but we have to keep doing, we'll be back during the summer. We need to keep doing this about the, the theories of football, the things we can't really do during season because there's too much else to talk about. Um, but this stuff I think is a lot of fun. And I, I'm like you, I heard a lot of, uh, a lot of good bounce back on the, on the air raid one. Cool. Yeah. I want to do our next one. Um, I got the elite 11 coming up. Yeah. So I want to find out what high school players are being taught and how they're being taught it, and what's new. You could, I, I, I believe high school football is five years ahead of college, and college is five years ahead of the league. So we'll come back uh, when you get back from Paris, and we'll knock yeah. out a pod around the quarterback position and what's what's really happening there. Amen. Another thing I want to do with you, coming off your Elite 11, because the Los Angeles Times, who it's credit, did a wonderful story yesterday about recruiting. And obviously yes. yesterday, well, as we're talking, yesterday was the one-year anniversary of George Floyd, and the LA Times did a terrific story on that and its impact on young high school kids, young, obviously young black high school football players today, and how that's impacting them, their, their view, what their families are telling them, and how it's impacting recruiting. I thought that was a, a real hat tip to the LA Times for doing that story. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with basically the gist of it was players are choosing schools based on the footprint and how racism is dealt with or not dealt with and how coaches are dealing with it and standing up in the anti-racist movement or having some miscues in that movement. It was really well done. Brady McCullough did it. Uh, we'll make sure we put that on our social medias as well. Check it out. All right, so he's Ted. I'm Yogi. Uh, we'll keep it going. We're less than 100 days away from our first game, Ted, in a booth. We hope with fans, man. It's I, I got a feeling this, this fall is going to be pretty fun, man. Fans will be good. We had a lot. There were probably five, 600 at Stanford last Saturday. A lot of it was family, but it's just to have people there. Terrific. All right, man. All right, everybody. Appreciate the time. Stay safe. Peace.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.